Welcome to the podcast. I am Joe Posnanski, and uh, as you all know, uh, co-host Mike Shore is uh, off making uh, the good place. Uh, he should be back in the next few weeks, I uh, believe. So, just so you know, uh, for your own for your own uh, knowledge and edification, uh, we basically have a nightly podcast about the Yankees uh, continuing to win despite the fact that. They now have like three of my neighbors playing for them. So uh, Mike is undoubtedly saving all of that uh, fury uh, for the podcast when he comes back. But in the meantime, of course, we have our cavalcade of guest uh, host stars and uh, could not have a better one this week. My dear friend, uh, ESPN writer, uh, the best writer in, uh, in, in women's basketball, I believe my friend, Michelle Vopel, Michelle, welcome. Thanks, Joe. Oh, it's so great to have you on here. How are you? I'm really good. Um, you know, the, the blues are in the second round of the Stanley cup playoffs. The Cardinals are coming off a sweep of the Milwaukee Brewers and pretty much my emotional health is tied to those two teams. All the yes, time. that, that, so, that is true. Uh, that's sad to say, but it's true. And so right now I'm doing really, really well. Well, that's good. That's good. We will talk at length, uh, particularly about your uh, love of the Cardinals, which is, uh, which is uh, great. And we're going to do a little draft later on, but uh, I would not be uh, doing my my due diligence as a podcast host if uh, I didn't want to talk to you at least for a couple of minutes about the women's final four, which just ended, which was insane. And um, and there's something very specific I want to ask you about because uh, y- you know we've been friends for a very long time, and 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 we think about sports in many much in the same way. And one of the things that we think about in sports is sort of the individual uh, story, the, the, the story of the individual you know, players and, and people involved, obviously, but how they tie so closely into the game. And the end of the championship game was one of those crazy, crazy moments where something uh, rather uh, sad and, and, and harsh happens to a, a player. We, you had a player at the end of the game uh, miss a free throw that ended up uh, being the difference in in the game, uh, but it happened to be one of the greatest women's basketball players ever, and a person who has had extraordinary glory at the end of games in the past. I'll have you explain that, but wow, what a! What, I mean, you had to be feeling incredibly emotional about the way that game ended. It was really crazy, and I have to tell you what flashed through my mind, and I didn't write it because I thought this will only make sense to people of a certain age or people who watch a lot of reruns was the happy days episode where remember when Richie hits the big the big shot the big free throw and he's the toast of of the town and every girl wants to go out with him and he's just the most popular guy in the whole world and he's on top of the world and then the next game he misses the shot and all of a sudden he's very lonely and and he sort yes. of has, has has that you know moment with uh with his dad at the end or his where uh you know mr cunningham offers him a lifesaver i believe at the end and that's, that is correct that i is swear correct. to you that ran through my mind 
as that game ended. It, it was just like, oh my gosh, it's it's the Richie Cunningham thing. It was Arike Agumbawale, who, as you said, is a, a great player and who will always be known for oh, having yeah. the, you know one of the biggest uh, Final Fours. I think men or women, how many times have we ever seen a Final Four where the same person hits a game-winning shot in both the semifinals and the final? Um, and it's one, crazy. And, yeah, and the semifinal against their arch rival, Connecticut, uh, Notre Dame, of course, she plays for. And that's in overtime. And then, you know, you think that the final last year against Mississippi State is going to overtime and she hits another shot. So she's just, yes. she's the toast of what most of us felt like from a competitive standpoint and an excitement standpoint was the best final four we'd ever seen. And then you come down to this year where uh, ba- they're playing Baylor. Baylor loses um, who I think is their best player, Lauren Cox, to a knee injury in the end, during the end of the third quarter. And Notre Dame comes back and you think, okay, here we go. She's going to be the one to send it to overtime. And Notre Dame's probably going to win in overtime. You know, at this point, uh, Baylor's looking like they're kind of running on fumes. She's a over 80% free throw shooter. Yeah. In my mind, and I think everybody around me on press row, we're already preparing for overtime. You know, this is yeah. going to happen. She's going to make these. It's And when she misses the first free throw, I think there was just a collective gasp in the entire arena. (laughs) And then she tries to miss the second one, doesn't, makes it. um, And all Baylor has to do is get the ball in. And what it reminds me of so much, Joe, is, and you and I talk about this all the time, is we often think like, we know what the story is going to be. We have a pretty good idea. We we know it based on what we've seen before. And then we're, we're reminded sometimes sports has a has a mind of its own like things happen you never expect to happen and then you have somebody like you said was uh, on top of the world in one final four and then you know left the floor in tears in, in the second one it's crazy it's crazy and and you know look it's crazy anytime i mean anytime you see it's so heartbreaking to me to see a kicker miss a you know game winner at the end or a game tie or particularly somebody miss a free throw at the end of a of a of a game to tie the game. Uh, you know th- those kinds of things are are very difficult because you you know you know how much that means to them and and how much that's going to affect their lives. But for it to happen specifically to to Enrique Ogunbowale. Uh, after many things, including the fact that she hits both game winners the year before, she was insane in this game. She's what she scored like thirty-one or something, right? Exactly. I mean, she was she was she was unstoppable in this game. There seemed no possible way that she was going to miss that free throw, based not only on how good she is, but on on her history of of uh, of success in the in the last seconds, but. You know, but that is a reminder. It it is a reminder that sports don't don't work out necessarily the way you think they are, and a reminder that the greatest players, um, they don't choke. You know, I mean, like that idea that we have in our minds of choking is, you know, it sometimes just doesn't work out. You know, I mean, eighty percent free throw shooter is outstanding, but it still means you miss two out of every ten. So, so you know, these are. I just thought it was so emotional everything about that game was very emotional Baylor builds the huge lead it doesn't even look like it's going to be a close game uh the injury happens and they you know and Notre Dame comes 
flying back um, and and ties the game in the last you know few couple minutes and 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 then the crazy ending and all that. It was a very very emotional game, but I just thought that in particular, I, I still think when people think back to to her amazing career, they're going to think more to the to the to the game winning shots than than her missing that free throw at the end. But stunning to have one player sort of at the center of so many you know, big, big moments at the end of games in final fours uh, to have one player be that, you know, and that speaks to how great she is, really. It does. And it also, you know, it reminds you how difficult it is to win a national championship and, yeah. and how many things can go can go wrong. And then that reminds you of how amazing it is that, you know, UConn's won 11 of them, but they That's haven't amazing. won for the last three years. They've lost in the semifinals for three years in a row. And Gino Oriam always said, you know, what we're doing, you know, when they won the four in a row, he said, this is insane. We shouldn't be doing it. Um, <laughs> and it's going to come to an end. And we're not going to be able to do it um, every year. And and that's the truth. It, it really is hard to hard to do. And I thought both it's, it's interesting because both of the if you want to talk about sort of the big overview stories of both final fours this year with the men and the women were both really compelling. You know, one with a team that had just, you know, had to put up with basically a year of being mocked and made fun of for um, for a loss that shouldn't have happened. I think, you know, they would admit it. And we and then to come all the way back the very next year and win a championship and also to have crazy games in that championship. Crazy endings, just just crazy endings. Um, and then on the women's side to have, like you said, the, the player um, who had been celebrated all year, you know, she'd been in all the commercials, you know, it was how many times this year, if you, if you watched any women's basketball, did you hear the replay of the call, oh, you know, Agumawale, yeah. good, <laughs> you know, and, and now it was, you know, this was the flip side of that. Well, I know that a lot of our, our podcast listeners might not necessarily be huge women's basketball fans, but Everybody follows Connecticut. Everybody knows about the dominance of Connecticut over the last few years. As you mentioned, it's been now three years, and and you know the last two years it's been I guess Notre Dame that took them out in in both uh, both chances. They it's not like it's not like they you know suddenly weren't any good. They were still the favorites going in, and they and they were upset. Um, is, has something fundamentally changed? I mean, is there is there some weird like people aren't as freaked out about Connecticut as they used to be? Are they not quite as, as good as they used to be? What, what are you, what are you seeing? Or is this just because it's so hard to win a championship and they, they're just as good as always, but you know, it just hasn't worked out the last couple of years. You know, it probably has a, a, a bit of all of those things. Um, it, you know, it was interesting that earlier this year, the Oregon state coach, Scott Rook, um, talk about somebody who's built a program. Trust me, even if you don't know anything about women's basketball, Oregon State was as bad as you can get before <laughs> he took over. Like they had three players, right? They'd had a player revolt, coach got fired. They'd never been really any good. And he was able to get that program to a final four in 2016, which was an amazing accomplishment. And now, you know, they're they're good every every year. Um, <laughs> one thing he said earlier this year after his team beat Oregon another program that's had a complete, you know, turn of, of fortune um, for the good. He said, you know, Mississippi State beating UConn in 2017, and that was the famous shot where Morgan William, the, you know, the five foot nothing uh, point guard who, who hits the winning shot in overtime, 
he said that really energized a lot of people. People almost had already given that final four to UConn because they'd won the four previously. And he said, you know, sometimes coaches need that boost of energy, that idea that, wait a minute, this isn't, this isn't just us playing for second place. And we need to, to think of it that way. So I do think that game was really huge when they lost in, in 2017 in the semifinals. And then it's part of it is that Notre Dame has been such a nemesis for UConn. Yeah. Every great uh, program, and I think this is true in any sport, even individual sports, no matter how great you are, there's probably one team or one player, you know, if it's a golf or tennis or, or whatever, um, who who is is kind of a nemesis. And maybe they don't beat you all the time, but they beat you more than anybody else does. And that's been the case with, you know, with UConn and Notre Dame. It hasn't necessarily always worked out for Notre Dame that they've won a championship, you know, because they've beaten UConn in the semifinals. But it did last year, and it almost did this year. So I think it's sure. that sort of that combination of they, they have they have a real nemesis and then they were proven to be human. And I say that with a little caveat, you know, that 2017 wasn't overtime on a last second shot. And it was the only <laughs> game they lost all year. So that's that's kind of it. But um there is there's definitely a feeling now, I mean, there there almost has to be, right? That that, you know, other teams say, well hey, you know, they haven't won in three years. That's kind of, a, you know, that's different after them winning four in a row and 11 overall. And so I do think it gives some energy to other programs. I think I think that happens across sports in general. I, you know, I mean, I, I really do believe that there is something, if somebody would just go out and beat the Patriots, I think it would, it would create a whole different vibe about that team. I mean, I, I I think there are teams that it's not the teams go in uh, to to games against the Patriots and feel like oh we have no chance to win. Obviously, they've had very very close games and all of that. But but I do think that there is just that slight bit of doubt, and I don't think it's going to change probably at this point until Tom Brady uh, finally leaves the the stage. But but I I do believe that I you know I think that's true in in individual sports I mean I I think a lot of people felt like that was a huge part of Tiger's uh, dominance certainly was a huge part of Federer and Nadal and 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 Djokovic now to to some degree where you know they have you you know they they if if you give a somebody a five percent edge just based on their reputation and based on how how good they are. Um, you know, that, that can play a huge difference. And, and I do think, you know, for a while there, I think it was hopeless against Connecticut. And you're right, the 2017 win uh, by Mississippi State was particularly because that team was considered unbeatable, right? I mean, that, you know, the last couple of years have been a little bit different. I mean, everybody thinks they're really good uh, and very, very tough to beat. But that 2017 team, I mean, people were following them just to see what the, the final score was going to be right i mean it was they they didn't they average like not only they win every game weren't they averaging to winning games by like 20 25 points well what was interesting that year it was the year after they had lost the top three picks in the WNBA draft including you know the best player in the world uh who unfortunately is now going to be out brianna stewart because she ruptured her achilles but Mm. she was a senior in in 2016 that was you know they went through that year undefeated and that year was the year that Oregon State made it to the Final Four. And Scott Rourke said, 
we knew we weren't going to, you know, there was no <laughs> chance any of the other three of us in that final four were going to win. It was just figure out, you know, what you think the score is going to be. The next year with, with Brianna Stewart and Mariah Jefferson and Morgan Tuck gone, there was a little thought, oh, UConn might be vulnerable, but they weren't at all. They went through that entire season. And you're right, going into that 2017 Final Four, I no, honestly, I'll be totally honest with you. I covered the first game at that Final Four, and then I was writing my game story. And I thought, you know, uh, the, the next game, as, as much as I'd liked that Mississippi State team, and I'd seen them so much, I thought, you know, there's just no chance. Because they had lost by 60 to UConn in the NCAA tournament the year before. And yes, that's 60, not 16. 6-0. So um, that had been the year before that they had lost by that much. And uh, that had been a Sweet 16 game. So everybody thought, look, if they can come within 16, for instance, that would be <laughs> progress. And they won. And so you're right. This other, you know, another memory that always comes back to me, and, and it may not, it may not make uh, it may not be a direct correlation, but I think you know what I mean is when you know when uh, in in 1982 when Dwight Clark went up and got that pass against yeah. the Cowboys, and you thought, okay, and the Cowboys didn't win every year, but it always felt like if it was a big game, especially a big um, you know championship game, you know the the um, the, the conference championship game to get yes. to the Super Bowl. Yes. You thought there's no chance, you know, they're going to win that game. And I remember watching that in and in my room. And I think anybody who's who watched it can remember where they were and feeling like I think I just saw something change in sports. Like I think this was a monumental change. And it certainly it was for the 49ers, but I think it was for the NFL. And and so there are those moments that you can go back to a shot or a you know a, a field goal or a caught pass or a home run or something, where you really feel like okay that was monumental. You know it was it yeah, was I, historical. I think that's right. I think that's right. And the funny thing about that game is, I'm you know we're we're about the same age, and I was watching that game as well. And one thing that's often forgotten about that game is that play. There was still time left on the clock. The, the Cowboys got the ball back, and I. I I'm vaguely remembering how it ended. I remember it was like maybe with a Danny White fumble or a sack or or something fairly close to midfield. But even after he made that catch, I mean, now that's so iconic. But I remember at the time thinking, oh, the Cowboys are still going to win this game. Like, yeah, you know, exactly. I mean, they, they didn't have Roger Stahl back, but they were still the Cowboys. And um, yeah, and I think that moment has happened. I thought when when uh, the Marlins beat the Yankees um, in the in the uh, World Series in two thousand three, uh, that did not seem super likely uh, to 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 anybody. And you know, and it it did kind of fundamentally change the whole Yankee. You know, they've only been back once since, and you know, they won it in nine, but that's it. So I, yeah, I I do think that happened. So that's it is it's fascinating. It's fascinating, and and. Um, you know, I, I want to, I want to, you know, keep moving things along because I want to talk baseball with you because, um, you know, I, I, I tell people this, I happen to be in my friend group. Um, there are a lot of Cardinals fans. Uh, there, there just are because it, that's just the way it worked out. The Cardinals are obviously very popular, but I don't believe that I have a Cardinals friend, uh, friend uh, who is who is on quite the same level of you as as a Cardinal fan. Both in your Cardinal uh, 
love and adoration and obsession and in your Chicago Cubs, um, what would you call it? Anti-hatred. Yeah, I don't like the words that hate, but yeah, I don't really see how else you could describe it. Loathing. Yeah, a little bit of loathing. Um, And so so this season has been already uh, quite monumental, although the Cubs have been playing better uh, lately. Uh, this season is already your 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 Cardinals are in first place. They're coming off of a uh, a sweep of the Brewers, as you say. They they look pretty darn good. I mean, it's not you're not seeing a lot of fluky things. I I, I know I can't wait to hear what you're going to tell me about what it's like to have Paul Goldschmidt on your team. Um, and the Cubs are kind of weird and a mess, and they have been playing a little bit better lately, but can't quite figure out what the heck that team is even doing and. The Kyle Schwarber thing is kind of a, a disaster. So, so my question for you is: so how how high is your like sports sort of you know feeling right now? Are you feeling like pretty pretty darn good at the moment? Um, well, that would sort of be contrary to my personality um, <laughs> because I do wait for things that are going to go wrong yes. and anticipate yes, them, but I feel as good as I could feel, as I said yeah. earlier, because. Um, you know, I, I, they, and sort of your mood. And I think, um, I do think most real sports fans, we have to sort of admit this about ourselves. Our mood tends to be a little bit too, um, determined by, <laughs> by our sports teams, but I always say, and everybody in my family and close friends would vouch for this. I'm a lot better than I was 20 years ago. So I'll, I'll, I'll give myself that because I used to. Yeah, be I don't really. I don't bad. believe. Tw- I don't believe twenty years ago you could have handled the Cubs winning a World <laughs> Series. No, but you know what I have to bring up with this because I bet you know some people are listening and they're like, "Oh my God, Cardinal fans are so annoying." And you know what? I, I know, and I'm I am sorry about that. Um, I know we're kind of like the people at a party that come up to you and start talking to you, and then you are like, "Oh God, gosh, I need more ice in my glass," and and you you flee. And I guess I would say I am, I really, it, we can't help it. <laughs> it really, it's just who we are. And so you kind of almost have to embrace it and hope your friends don't loathe you too much um, for, for being that way. It's, it's very genuine, I think, with, with all of us. It's what we grew up with and we're, we're very emotional about it. And it's our moms and our dads are like this. And, and um, so it's very real, but I get that it's probably super annoying and, and I'm sorry for that. But I, I got it. You told me, and I just want to say this real quick. You told me I, that when the Cubs won the World Series, that it was going to happen. I remember you called me. I remember exactly where I was. I was covering the <laughs> WNBA Finals in 2015. It was a year before they did it. And you told me, like, look, the worms turned, and you were right. And we, we both know that. The Cubs were better than the Cardinals then. That, that, that postseason was the worm turning. And you yes. said – Look, you're going to have to basically deal with this. You're a good friend. You knew I was going a little nuts. <laughs> but you did say when it happens, they're going to be just like everybody else. The mystique then is gone. And the the thing you've dreaded your whole life will have happened and you'll have survived it. And you know what? You were right about that. <laughs> I did survive it. So you know, I don't well, have to yeah. dread that it's going to end, you know, oh, the, the 108 year streak is going to end. It did end. And now maybe hopefully they've started another 108 year streak and I won't be around to see the end of that one, but you know, 
Well, I, I yeah, I, I'm not betting on 108 years, but here's <laughs> no, me here, here's here's what I'm thinking. Here's here's what I truly believe. Um, all sports fans are to other sports fans annoying. They like they have annoying and because they're not rooting for your team, they're rooting against your team by rooting for their own team. And you know, and 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 obviously there are different levels, but I think the different levels of if you want to call it annoyance tends to be directly related to how passionate they are about their own team. So for instance, like in college football, uh, I used to, my very first job um, as a, as a writer was covering the university of Georgia for the Augusta Chronicle. And um, so I, and I knew very little about sec football when I was going in. I mean, I knew, you know, just, just the basics. And I really, for, for some reason was not as aware of how big a deal Georgia, Florida is, you know, I, I maybe was aware of that whole, you know, biggest cocktail party thing or whatever, maybe, but, but not much. So that was really my introduction to Florida football fans. And I was blown away by how um, passionate Florida football fans are. And I use that word passionate. You can put in annoying, you can put in horrifying, you can put in whatever you want but they are crazy. They're crazy about uh, Florida football. Uh, certainly were then, and you know, I assume it's the same, even though they're not quite the same at the same level, I guess, as they have been in the past. Uh, but they're insane. And so you go, wow, these fans are really over the top, but they're not in the sense of they're no different than Oregon or Oregon State fans or Texas or UTEP or any other Maryland fans. They're, they're, they're the same. They're just a lot more of them and they're just a lot more passionate about it. So it's like completely in, in your head. So, so, you know, Georgia fans are the same way. I Georgia fans just hearing them talk about Auburn uh, is like hearing uh, you talk about the Cubs. I just think it's all about passion and, and, you know, Cardinals fans are extraordinarily passionate about about the game and you know i know so many nice people who are cubs fans and if i were a better human being i would (laughs) not have begrudged them that world series and i know that i know that's like the worst trait (laughs) that i have that i begrudged them but you know what they got it and they celebrated it like crazy and um, they really did i will say um good for them they they are very loyal and passionate too and you can't ever question that passion now i'm sure they're as annoyed as i am by like the bandwagon people because i know the people i know who are cubs fans they are just as passionate and just as devoted um, to the cubs oh, and to the cardinals but um but i do have to say i i know many of them and they're super nice and it's really kind of a you know it's inexplicable that they're nice to me honestly they shouldn't be um <laughs> But yeah, they won. They, and they, I, they don't know you. They don't know yeah, you. They don't yeah, know they, your heart. Yeah. About unfortunately, the it's it's pretty dark in there. I'm afraid. But uh. <laughs> okay, so uh, I, one other Cardinals Cubs question, and then I want to talk about uh, a couple of those Cardinals players and how you're feeling. Um, and and this fascinates me on many different levels. I'll speak it specifically to the Cardinals and Cubs, but it fascinates me about. North Carolina Duke. It fascinates me about Ohio State, Michigan. It fascinates me about Alabama, Auburn. It fascinates me about all of the the you know rivalries in in sports and pr- particularly the professional rivalries like this one. Who hates who more? 
Like, do you think it's a clear case that Cardinals fans hate Cubs more, Cubs fans hate Cardinals more, or that it's equal? When you look at it, do you see the rivalry flowing both ways in an equal direct, in an equal sort of level of uh, of extremeness, or, or what do you think? I think it's equal. Um, okay. I think for a while, you know, obviously the the Cardinals were were you know are more successful historically. Um, that's indisputable, um, and have had more. You know, obviously one one more but then if you look at the actual head-to-head it's it's almost even um and and so that's what I would always say to people people would say you know when the Cubs were really those years when they were really bad they'd say well how can you hate them they're really bad and I was like yeah they're generally not really bad against us you know they generally (laughs) play really well against us and they're um you know so you know they've they've cost us you know, in seasons with, you know, games that they've won against us that have, that have cost us in terms of the standings. And I, I always felt like, again, with the, with the, you know, the fans who are the fans I know who are Cubs fans that, that I know, they're generally nice to me and I'm generally nice to them, but I actually think deep down, both of us really don't mean it. You know, we're not, we're not, it's <laughs> fake nice. Um when when they won in 2015, when they won the the postseason series, I was like I said, I was covering a, the WNBA finals, and there was a Cubs fan who was a photographer there, and he was just giving me a lot of grief. He didn't even know me, so he didn't really know how dangerous that was. Not uh, but he was giving me no, a lot I'm, of grief. That's not smart. Not and smart. Um, but I was you know professional about it. You know we're in the media room, and he said to me, "God, it's like he said for us, this is like we finally." beat up the neighborhood bully and I had to kind of I thought okay I'm not sure I even mind that that much like if you know he's from Chicago which is an international city right I mean (laughs) right let's be honest Chicago versus St. Louis I love St. Louis I'd pick it first but most people would say Chicago is much more cosmopolitan and glamorous and it's bigger it's yeah it's second city um and and he but he thought of in my mind little old St. Louis as the bully, you know, as the as the as the team that was and the you know the the bad guy that got knocked off. And I thought, well, I don't think that's so bad. Um, I'll I'll kind of take that. But I don't know if all Cubs fans feel that way, or if they you know again if they think um, I I know like 2011, I had a friend who unfriended me on Facebook because he just could not deal with the fact that the Cardinals <laughs> won that 2011 World Series. <laughs> And I don't blame him because that was probably a pretty annoying World Series to watch if you hated the Cardinals. Might have been as annoying as any World Series to watch if you hated the Cardinals. So uh, that's why I would say I think it's even. Uh, you know, Joe, a lot of people would say, and I'd be curious what you think of this, a lot of people feel like the Cubs-Cardinals is a friendly rivalry and they think like Yankees-Red Sox is not friendly at all and Dodgers-Giants isn't friendly at all. Um I don't know. Maybe it's because Midwesterners are generally seem a little more chill. Um, so, so I don't know. In my mind, it's just as heated as those two rivalries. Uh, yeah. I don't know if everybody else feels that way. No, it is. I well, and and you're right. I don't know what the perception is. I think the perception is that it's not as heated, but that's just wrong. It's sort of there's something about the Midwest. I remember, you know, when. Um, when uh, I was working for the star, when we were working together for the star, we would have people come in 
uh, and they would see the paper uh, after a Chiefs loss or, or leading into a, uh, a, an important Chiefs game or whatever. And they would say they would be coming from, you know, Boston or New York or Philadelphia or something. And they'd be like, man, man, the, the paper is really hard on the Chiefs, man. You guys kill the Chiefs like crazy. And I'd be like, well, I don't see it being any different. But they, the perception was, oh, nice little old Kansas City. Well, little old Kansas City is just as passionate about the Chiefs as the you know, anybody in New England is about the Patriots or the Yankee fans are about the Giants or even Philadelphia fans. Like that whole thing to me gets really overblown. That whole Philadelphia fans are different. They boo, you know, know, Philadelphia fans are tough, but yeah, you know what? Chiefs fans are tough and Cowboys fans are tough and, and, uh, and Cardinals fans are tough. This is, I, I don't, I don't buy that they're fundamentally different. Um, you know, I mean, there might be more, of one kind or another, but I, I don't buy the fundamental difference. I wrote a piece a few years ago when the Cubs started getting good. I guess it was probably 2014, 2015 when the Cubs started getting good. And I wrote a piece about Cardinals fans um, not being super happy about it. And and the the point being that everybody's like, oh, America's sweetheart, the Cubs. Well, not everybody feels – Brewers fans don't feel that way about the Cubs and the Cardinals fans don't feel that way about the Cubs. And – I got a ton of like very, very passionate, angry responses to that because I guess some people did perceive this as being friendlier than it is. I don't buy that it's friendly at all. I don't I don't think Cardinals fans or Cubs fans feel about uh, each other any differently than Yankees fans feel about the Red Sox. There's just a more of a history in the postseason and and with crazy late season, you know, things between the Yankees and the Red Sox. That's really what makes that thing. There's no Bucky Dent moment for the Cardinals and the and the and the Cubs. And the Yankees and Red Sox have had like 15 of those. So that's what makes that rivalry different. But I don't think the feelings are any different at all. I, I don't think so either. And and uh, I think you're right that the, there's been that sort of head to head. And, you know, obviously it's it's East Coast and, and it's going to, you know, it's New York and, and Boston. I mean, it's that's as big as it gets. Right. I mean, realistically, right, of course. So of I course. totally understand that. You know what I don't know? And and I would be curious because I really don't know this. I don't know who Brewers fans hate more. I don't know if they hate Cubs fans and the Cubs more or or Cardinals fans and the Cardinals more. I'm really not sure. I think they hate the and, Cardinals more, but I don't that's know. Interesting. Sure. Cause I, I was going to say, I think they hate the Cubs more and I don't know that. I don't, I don't have a great, uh, you know, that's a really, that's kind of a cool triangle anyway, you know, Brewers, Cardinals, Cubs. Um, I really don't think like it's, it, that division is so much more like connected than, than the American league central. Like I don't, Cleveland fans don't hate Detroit. They don't care. And, and and nobody hates the White Sox. Nobody thinks enough about them to hate them. Certainly nobody hates the Twins. They're, they're, they're the, those lovable little guys. Um, so that whole division is just like uh, just a bunch of – there are a bunch of teams that are competing against each other. But, you know, there was once that Royals-White Sox thing. Remember when True. they beat up the, the coach and they <laughs> there was all kinds of stuff like that. But generally speaking – the NL Central, I mean, Brewers fans, I, I have been lucky enough to spend some time in Milwaukee and, and listened as Brewer fans hate 
the Cubs. They hate the Cubs. You could probably speak to Brewers fans and how they feel about the Cardinals. We know how the Cardinals and Cubs feel about each other. Like that's a that's cool. That's really what you kind of want it to be, you know. And then yeah. and then you got you got a couple other teams that don't really nobody really thinks much about the Reds and 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 you know whatever. But the Pirates. But but it's it's very um, those those three feel good. But I'm glad to hear you say that. I I my thought was that Cardinals fans might hate the Cubs more. The Cubs fans hate the Cardinals. I don't know that, and maybe we'll hear from a bunch of people who fill that in. I always think about that Kansas-Kansas State rivalry in sports, which is kind of one direction, Yeah. Um, right? Like Kansas State fans really don't like Kansas. And Kansas fans, like generally in basketball, they've been better for the most part than Kansas State. You know, they had that long winning streak against them and uh, generally don't care about enough about football to be worried that they're not as good. So so it doesn't feel like there's a lot coming from from Kansas to Kansas State. So that rivalry feels more one directional. But I think the Cardinals Cubs is two directional. I just my thought was the Cardinals fans uh, dislike the Cubs more. But maybe I'm wrong about that. Yeah. And it could be it could just depend on. um it may, some of it might be generational. Um, you know, what's interesting about the Cubs Cardinals rivalry, and I guess you could say this uh, about a, a lot of rivalries. Um, but really this one is that you have Illinois is such a, you know, a, a, a split state yeah. because if, yeah. you're, if you're in certain parts, I mean, you can go all the way to, to Springfield for instance, and you have um, plenty of Cardinals fans, you could go South and it, it could be split. I mean, that whole state is, 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 you know, the split between, for the most part, Cardinals and Cubs fans. And True. you have people in the same family, you know, obviously, who, you know, who grew up in the same town and one, one picks Cardinals and one picks Cubs. Um, you know what I, and, and this, maybe this will, I, I can't imagine this changing, right? I'm too old to change about this. I don't hate the Brewers. I mean, I, I really don't. In fact, I rooted for, I wanted them to win the World Series last year. I, I like their yeah. team. Um you know, I wish Christian Yelich wasn't killing us all the time, but I really like him as a player. Really like Lorenzo Cain. You know, just happy sure. to see him, him there because he was obviously such a great player. Um, seeing him, you know, with the Royals and stuff, and I just generally, I don't. You know, I root against them when you know, obviously the Cardinals are playing them, but I, it, it's nothing like. I mean, it's not even in the same galaxy in any possible way as what I feel. You know, if it's the Brewers and the Cubs, I, I'm the biggest Brewers fan in the world. Yeah. Well, I think the Brewers probably feel – I think that's more one-directional. I think the Brewers certainly dislike the Cubs more than the Cubs dislike the Brewers. I, and that's – again, so much of that is just in part they've not really been a threat until, sure. until fairly recently. And that's a big – it has to – so many things have to go – into a great rivalry. One is they have to feel like a threat. Um, and you, you, you know, the argument is the Cubs haven't really been a threat to the Cardinals for many, many years, but they were always there, the bigger city. There's, mm -hmm. there's enough going on there that, that, that it's, uh, that you could see how a rivalry builds up. All right. Enough of that, because I have to, I I've been, I've been waiting this whole time. I'm dying to know when the Cardinals, uh, got Paul Goldschmidt, my first thought was, uh, you and my first thought was how extraordinarily happy that would make you not just because Paul Goldschmidt's a great player not just because he's now a cardinal it's like it's like he was born to be 
a Cardinal and the kind of player that you love and the kind of player that just sort of fits in, you know, and look, he'd be, he'd be a superstar and a great player in all uh, organizations, but there's some, there's something, and I I'll use the term as much as I'm not a huge fan of it. There's something very Cardinal way about Paul Goldschmidt. uh, And I know that, that, that you would uh, fully appreciate that. So, He's now played whatever, you know, handful of game, about a month's worth of games. Where do you stand right now on Paul Goldschmidt? I couldn't love Paul Goldschmidt anymore <laughs> if I tried. And here's the thing. If you would have asked me any player that I wanted from any other team last year, if you would have said, if you could have anybody. Now, maybe there are other people I should have picked, but if you would have said, you can have, Cardinals can have anybody. I would have said, can we please have Paul Goldschmidt? <laughs> and it's for all the corny things that you said, and it's true. I, just, I love the way he goes about his business. I love how just, you know, he's he just he just gets it done, right? He just yeah. gets it done. Uh, also, the Cardinals needed a first baseman, you know, who could catch Didn't the hurt. ball. Very, very, we <laughs> needed that very badly. So that was that was great. But he just, he did. He seemed like, a guy who was born to play for the Cardinals, which again, I know is going to make, you know, the Cardinal haters say, Oh God, this again, but that's what, that's what it felt like. And I think he's, and then the fact that he signed a long-term deal before he ever played a game at Bush stadium. I mean, I'm not sure you could endear yourself to Cardinal fans (laughs) any more than, than he has. Yeah. Well, I mean, there is something, and, and this is, you know, this is a part of a larger story that I have. And that is, that I truly believe that fans, and and it, this is more pronounced probably with the Cardinals than just about anybody else, maybe with Patriots fans, um, there are a few others, Alabama fans, if you go to college and that kind of thing, you view yourself a certain way, and maybe it's annoying to other people, but if you're a Cardinals fan, you you have this sort of perfect image of what the Cardinals would be, and and they would be this professional team that goes about its business that does it humbly that you know stays you know all of those things that that Albert Pujols was when when he was playing uh with the Cardinals uh but but you know there's there's a list of those guys and there's you know that image and and frankly one of the toughest parts of being a sports fan is when your team does not fit your image at all when they when you look at your team and you're like okay well they're trying to win but they're not trying to win in a way that is um interesting to me or speaks to me or speaks to the kind of person uh, that I want, the kind of team that I want, uh, any of those things. And that's why, you know, look, if, if they obviously, you know, if you have the first pick in the draft, I you, you take Mike Trout. If you have the second pick in the draft, you take, uh, you know, there, there are several players out there you could take. Paul Goldschmidt's in the mix there. But if you said, okay, who is like, who are you surprised is not on the Cardinals? It would have been Paul Goldschmidt, right? Like that's like, he so perfectly fits that image. So that does not surprise me that you love the guy. Yeah. And I guess I obviously, people would say you're nuts to not say Mike Trout. I guess in my mind, Mike Trout was untouchable, you know? So even, even if you gave me a fantasy draft where you could have anybody, (laughs) I wouldn't (laughs) think we could actually have Mike Trout. Uh, Whereas I thought Paul Goldschmidt, you know, you thought over the years, maybe this could happen. You know, maybe there could be a trade where it could happen and, you know, it's the Diamondbacks and they may get into a, you know, a rebuilding situation at some point that like it's it's possible. Um, you know, and I do want to say, obviously, I said he had, hadn't played a game of Bush. He played several times in Bush Stadium, but hadn't played as a Cardinal in Bush uh, Stadium. Yeah. And so yeah. um, 
you know, he got to, he got to do, you know, we're talking about corny stuff that we love, that we get all teary eyed over, you know, opening day where we have all the hall of famers there and the Clydesdales and the whole thing. Um, the fact that he was already signed and, you know, he was, we already knew he was going to be in the, in the fold before he even went through that thing was, um, was just really cool because you're, you know, part of you always knows it's a business, it's sports. It's not, is it's not, it's not what you thought it was when you were a little kid, but there's a part of you that really wants to hold on to that. And when you go to the ballpark, you still feel that. Cause I think if you didn't, it wouldn't be nearly as fun. Um, and, and Paul Goldschmidt does check all those boxes of what you thought a baseball hero should be like. Yeah, it's true. It really is true. And, and you're right. I mean, I, I think all any of us as a fan, uh, want is for that team to give us that moment where we kind of feel about them or about the sport, uh, the way we did when we were younger. I mean, we want to be able to, to put it, we know, you know, you're, you're suspending disbelief. We know what's behind everything and we get it. And you can, you can always go to Twitter if you ever need a, a, a nice, you know, shot, uh, in the face of, of what sports are really about, but you know, it's nice. And, and Paul Goldschmidt by all accounts and by all views, um, is the, is the, is the real deal. Like he's the real authentic, you know, just go out there and and play ball and, 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 you know, try to try to help the team win. And all of those, you know, corny cliches that, you know, we, we, we sort of at this, we, we do two things. We grimace at those little corny cliches at the same time that we kind of wish that sports was still a little bit more about that. Right. I mean, it's like yeah. always, always have that balance, you know, you're always on that balancing act. And, and I'm not talking about like people having fun and bat flips and all that, but I mean, we all want it to be like, Hey, these guys are, uh, they care. They're going out there and they care and, and they, they want to, they want to be a part of this because it's, it's the thing that, that has been driving them since they were kids and, and all of those things that, uh, that it's too easy to lose. So I'm thrilled for you. I mean, I, you know, Paul Goldschmidt, I mean, I, I feel sad for Diamondbacks fans, so uh, I, although they I do feel they bad got, for them. I yeah. Really, they got, they yeah. had a lot of great years with him. You know, they had a lot of great years with him. Uh, yeah, and of course I would love. Mike Trout's that guy too. I should say that. And I, I'd, I'd love to see, you know, I, I really would like to see that guy obviously win a world series. I mean, he's, he's that guy oh, too. Yeah. Um, he, he's, he's that guy. It's just, um, you know, it's, it's like when, when, you when your guys right your your guys on your team when they say things or do things that sincerely they sound like they sincerely like where they are that it isn't obviously it's a job it's a business we know all that but a guy like Matt Carpenter for instance with the Cardinals he really really wants to be in St. Louis uh, Adam Wainwright uh, Yadier Molina I mean these are guys who uh you know the Blues played uh, a game six the other night and there were at least four Cardinals at that game yeah. And, and it's because they love the city and, um, yeah, they're paid handsomely and all that. And you're right. You're right about going to Twitter and, you know, having every, <laughs> every good thing you feel knocked out of you in about five seconds, but you still love it when you love a city and you love a team and it's so much a part of your whole life and has been, and there are guys on that team that you think genuinely, they love it too even though it's their job and they know, you know, it's all about performance and all that. They still, 
there's that little part of them that I think um, that they can still connect to from when they first started playing baseball. Yeah, that's right. That's hundred percent right. And yeah, we never ever go on podcast without talking about how uh, Mike Trout is the perfect uh, player, and and we all want him to win. And and at this point, I mean, honestly, I mean, they just signed the huge deal. I I want it to happen there. I mean, at, at this yeah. point, what I want for Mike Trout's career, I mean, is is for him to be uh, uh, an angel forever, and for that team to get good, and and for him to get to play in some World Series, and and. And, you know, and, and retire as, as uh, you know, one of the, the 10 greatest players who ever lived. And I, I think that's that's the way it can go, except for the part about the Angels actually winning. And they've got to figure out how to make that happen. Um, but we'll see. We'll have to see about that. All right. Let's go on to our draft. Uh, time moves too fast on the podcast. Um, we are drafting uh, – Michelle and I have been – to how many uh, Olympics have we been to together? Have we been to I, four? I think three. Three, maybe. Three or four. Yeah, yeah I was trying to Although think. We okay, were so probably, were you at the Atlanta Games? I was at the Atlanta okay, Games. Okay, so we, we were didn't both know each other. there, but we didn't know each other, yeah. So. Yes. So we have been a few Olympics together. We have been Olympic uh, people uh, forever. So we are going to draft our favorite Olympic moments, right? This is, this is the draft is our favorite Olympic moments. And, and as, as is, uh, customary on the podcast, there are no rules beyond that. So they can be however you want to view it. They could be moments we were at, they were moments we're not at. We don't know. We, we have not discussed it. We are going to come at it the way we're going to come at it. And as our guest host, uh, you get the first pick. I feel like that's unfair because there's got to be one, especially if you're if you're an American and you're our age, it's unfair that I get to pick it because it's so obvious. Yeah. But I got to pick it, and thank you for letting me go first. It's got to be the Miracle on Ice, 1980. Sure. One of if you're of a certain age, I was almost 15 then. You remember, you remember that feeling, just. And, and people who, you know, weren't around then watching the movies, it's better than any movie. It was just, it was so unexpected that they would be able to do that. And the country was in a place where we needed them to do that. And um, yeah, it was, it was unbelievably special. And I guess it's that moment, you know, that mo- moment of beating, um, beating the Soviet Union in the semifinals. And then obviously coming back, um, you know, and, and winning the gold medal. They didn't win it that night, but it always feels like they, they won it that night. Yeah. That night was absolutely incredible. And it is one of those rare things that, and here's what's super cool about it. And I don't know how many people have talked about it this way. There are moments in your life, like, you know, obviously there's personal moments for all of us, but there are, there are moments that happen where you remember pretty much everything about it. And most of the time, those are bad things, right? You, I remember exactly where I was when I found out Challenger blew up, right? I remember exactly where I was when Reagan was shot. I remember exactly where I was when 9-11 obviously happened, um, on and on and on. They're usually bad things that, that, that create, I mean, they're, they're, they're tragic things that create that moment of memory that, that is, is inescapable. You, you never, ever forget it. And of course, you know, as there's, there are plenty of studies that show you really don't quite remember it exactly as well as you think you do, but, but something about it is burned in your memory. Um, That's one of the rare and maybe the only 
moment like that, like that, where I remember exactly where I was and it was a great thing. It was sort of a great thing for us, certainly as, as Americans. Uh, and I was there with my dad and I was, uh, you know, just about a year younger than you, uh, was there with my dad. I was 13 and, uh, we, he was on the couch and I was on the, on the gym. We were watching the, uh, television. We had the, you know, the, the horrible staticky, you know, with the rabbit ears television that we were watching. And what I remember so vividly was, uh, and, and people probably know this, that was shown on tape delay. It was not shown live. And when Jim McKay was introducing the game, there were like lots and lots of people behind him with like screaming USA, USA and, and all of this. And Jim McKay said, you know, something to the effect of, I'm not going to tell you what happened, but here's the game. And because of the way people were responding, I remember my dad saying like, what, could they have won? Could they have actually won? And then it was like, nah. I mean, it was so unlikely and so absurd that they were going to win. It was like it was like Mississippi State. I mean, they had basically lost by sixty uh, to the Russians, uh, to the Soviets in the uh, in the uh, early uh, uh, pre-Olympic uh, tournament. So, uh, so unlikely, so amazing. A certain moment in time when the Soviets were were this big scary, you know, thing. They were they were uh, there was the Cold War was still going on. I mean, everything about that led up to this extraordinary sports moment, and uh, nothing will ever touch it. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, even though we were kids then, w- you know, we knew because we saw it every day. Um, hostages had been taken the previous November yes. in Iran. Um, we didn't maybe know exactly what um, catastrophically high interest rates were, but we knew they were happening. We certainly knew, you know, that Gas our parents felt felt stressed. I could I can remember, you know, knowing that, being aware of it then, and and there was just a there was just an overall feeling of um, of kind of depression, kind of a yeah. national depression. Um, and that, yeah. yes, exactly. And so, you know, as we've seen in, in the years since, it's really hard to have one thing happen that the whole country is happy about, <laughs> um, really hard. And that was something, and you're right, um, that we didn't, you know, we knew we were watching it. Some people, I think somehow they've forgotten that it was on tape, you know, or they're, they're convinced that they saw it yes. live. Well, but, it right, um, right. You know, that, that memories, but we knew we were watching on tape. And what I remember is like that Jim McKay kept saying every time, you know, they come back for a commercial break, he'd say, you know, for anybody who doesn't know, we're not going to tell you the outcome. Right. And he would say right. it completely, but I swore I saw a little twinkle in his eye. I remember thinking <laughs> the same thing you did, like maybe they won, maybe it's yeah. possible. And then you were like, no, that's it's crazy. <laughs> they can't beat the Soviets. They, they lost by like 80 goals, like you said, and when they played them in, in Madison square garden, the previous, it just, it, there was no way, but there was that little bit of hope. And the, the, as the game kept going down, you kind of, you knew it was on tape, but there was a part of you that it, it, it felt, like it was happening. It felt live. live. It felt live. It really did. It was amazing. That's a great pick. It's the only pick. Uh, unless you're going to do what I'm going to do, which is uh, I'm only going to take uh, moments that I was at. 
because uh, because uh, it's more fun that way. Because there because there's so many amazing moments uh, that that I was not at and and trying to choose them. So I'm going to choose uh, uh, specific moments that I was at. And of course, my number one pick is one that I've written about uh, many times and will undoubtedly continue to write about many times. And that was uh, the absurd uh, upset of of Rulon Gardner. Uh, in the Greco-Roman Olympic uh, gold medal over the great uh, Russian Alexander Karelin at the 2000 Olympics in Sydney, uh, and I choose that. If you if you're interested in the full story, I have, as I said, written about it many many times. But in a short version of it, uh, it was the same night that the United States uh, baseball team was playing for the gold medal, and that team was uh, Tommy Lasorda's uh, was the manager of that team. And basically everybody went to that uh, for 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 obvious and 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 uh, smart reasons. And I had written about them, and I was a little. I don't like. I'm sure we'll discuss in further detail. I don't particularly like uh, Olympic sports that are um, uh, big in in other times of the year. I, I prefer the Olympic sports where it's clearly the number one thing is to win an Olympic gold medal. Uh, so I'm not crazy about baseball at the Olympics. Um, so I didn't go. I said I want to do something else, and I actually went to that event to what to write about Alexander Karelin, who was uh, going for, I believe, his fourth consecutive gold medal. Uh, he had not given up a point in three Olympics, I think. Uh, the the uh, president of the IOC was there that night to give him a special uh, commemorative medal for for his dominance as a as an athlete. Uh, and there were all these great stories about how we trained by carrying like refrigerators upstairs and 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 all kinds of other. So I went to write about Karelin, this unbeatable Russian. I didn't even know he was wrestling an American when I got there. I just thought I didn't care. All I wanted to do was write about uh, the great, you know, this Russian bear. And uh, and I didn't know what I was watching. I don't understand Greco-Roman wrestling to this day. I still don't know how it happened. I just remember the crowd going a little bit crazy. It was a sellout packed house going crazy when Rulon Garner scored his point, which I still am not entirely sure how he did. I've been, it's been explained to me, uh, but it's like, it's sort of like uh, craps, the, uh, the game craps. I don't, you can explain it to me a thousand times. I'll never understand it. And he ended up winning and I ended up writing about him and uh, in, in such a way where about 55 insane things happened along the way for me to write about him, including me running into his mother, into his father, talking to a radio station in Afton, Wyoming, where he was from, uh, all these other amazing things that, you know, as a writer, you hope will happen in uh, in total in your career. And it all happened to me in one night. Uh, so my favorite event of all time, Rulon Gardner, beating Alexander Corralin at the 2000 Olympics. So I say this not as your friend. I say this as somebody who edited for many, many years. It was the best deadline column I have ever read in my life. And I remember reading it and I had to get up and walk around and say, oh, this is so amazing. And then tell everybody at the star copy desk, you won't believe it. This is the best thing I've ever read. And to this day, I just remember, like, so for me, that was the experience. When I when I think of that, because it was such an amazing thing, was actually reading your column after it, because you had, like you said, so many, it, it was like there were, there were 84 different leads, <laughs> and they were all great. 
And so you put together a column of, okay, no, I've got to go with this lead. And the way you did it was just, it was brilliant. And uh, so I still just remember how exciting it was to, to read that. And, and you're right. That was another one of those, you know, sort of, I say David beats Goliath, Rulon Gardner is no David, right? He's a pretty big guy, but that's what it felt like from a, you know, from a Greco-Roman standpoint. Yeah, it was it was crazy. And as you know, and as I'm sure you'll have a couple of these on your list as well, there's nothing. I mean, you know, we're, we're so lucky. We're just lucky people that we get to do this. There's nothing like being there when an amazing Olympic moment happens. I mean, I don't know. I the, it's weird because I do think the one you picked, the 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 miracle on ice, in some ways I wonder if that wasn't better the way it happened on television. Uh, I think there are Olympic moments. I'll talk about one of those in a minute that are better on television than they are live. Um, but uh, that one in particular, because of the surprise, because of the extraordinary things that happened, uh, because he's an amazing character. I mean, Rulon Garner is just a very, very funny, interesting, weird uh, person uh, who I've gotten to write about uh, several other times since then. Um, because of all of these things, I'll never have a moment like that. And so when I speak, um, I, I have this very long version of this story that I tell, uh, not specifically to talk about uh, Gardner himself or or, the, or even that moment, but to talk about how crazy sports are, that you can just end up like, you know, I've, I've been fortunate enough to be at amazing, you know, I was there for whatever, 18, 20 Super Bowls and 18... 20 Olymp uh, World Series and Final Fours and NBA championships and, and Stanley Cup finals and everything else. He Wimbledon. And the greatest thing I've ever seen was a Greco-Roman wrestling thing. I didn't even understand what it was. I mean, that's that's what's so cool about sports, I think. It is. It, it, it very much is. Uh, you, you never know. You never know. Your second pick. Okay, so you're, you're going with things you were you were at. And, and I didn't give a ton of thought to these. I knew what we were doing, but it always seems like on the podcast, it's more fun if you kind of just <laughs> you don't know what you're your, doing. Exactly right. Yeah. You, you, you go, kind of go with what comes into your mind. Um, sure. And so this is, um, this is an event that gets ridiculed a lot, but I swear I have watched this probably as much as any um, Olympic performance. I saw it live. Well, I saw it on probably tape delay, right? It was on ABC tape delay, but I saw it when it was broadcast and was mesmerized by it. And I still am when I watched it. And that is, and it's another winter Olympic event, Torval and Dean winning uh, the golden wow. ice dancing in 1984. And part there's, a, there's a couple of reasons. One is that I think it was, uh, I think for the, what I call the perfection sports, which are, you know, uh, obviously gymnastics and ice skating where you're trying, you're doing the same routine that you've done over and over and over, but you're trying to make it perfect at the exact right time. We, you don't see that a lot, honestly. I mean, no. and you talk no. to great athletes in those sports and they'll say, you know, actually my, my best routine was probably, you know, at some other event and I was able right. to win the gold or I wasn't able to win because I couldn't, you know, produce it at this time, but this wasn't, um, you know, the best I skated. Peggy Fleming always says that, you know, she won the gold in 1968 in Grenoble. And she said, you know, that was really one of the more, you know, lackluster times I did that routine. I just really wasn't on, but I still won. Um, Torval and Dean were on 
you know, it was a great routine. It was to music that's just unforgettable, obviously, um, Bolero. And they did it perfectly at the right time. And I still think you get chills. Even the people who I know are like, oh, ice dancing, vomit. I wish it wasn't even in the Olympics, right? But (laughs) I think if if any sports fan, even if you don't like, um, you know, that sport, watching this can see the perfection of it and and the moment to, to get it right when you they most needed to get it right yeah it's the greatest it's the greatest i, I remember watching that my mom is a uh, is a huge huge uh figure skating uh fan and a fan of of ice uh uh she she prefers pairs uh but she likes her ice dancing as well um and just watching you know again it's it really is and I think the Olympics are different this way, particularly the Winter Olympics. They're about how they make you feel, right? The sports are not specific to, I mean, there are winners and losers. I mean, there's hockey and there's some other, you know, some other sports that are winners and loser type of things. But most of them are really about, they're they're like gymnastics in that same way. They're about how they make you feel and and you know they they judge them and and most of us don't understand how they judge and things that we think are great you know end up not being that great and and things that we think are and eh, they they score way higher than you think and you know because they're looking for different things but that was one of those moments and there have been a, a, a few of those where Torval and Dean you watched it you didn't have to know anything about it to know they they had nailed it that they were perfect right. And, and that's, uh, that's really cool. That's, it's really cool when it happens, I think in, in sports. And, and like I said, that's part of what makes the Olympics so special and why I don't particularly like it when, when our other sports get in there, it's like, okay, fine. But this isn't the Olympics. The Olympics are these sports of these, you know, sports you never see these athletes you don't know doing things that are just so extraordinary and and taking you to that very edge of perfection i mean it's that's that's to me what it's about my my second pick uh is is very much about the way it made me feel um i'm sure it'd be a, a lot of people's pick uh if you think of it in the in the aggregate but it is very very specific and i believe you were there with me as well it was in beijing the first time that i saw uh, Usain Bolt run the 100. Um, it was uh, it was not the final, which of course was when he set the world record. It was uh, the and it wasn't even the, the the semi. I believe it was the first the first uh, round, um, whatever that's called. And he ran the hundred. We were there in this gigantic stadium, and and you know at the time, you know it was before he had won anything. He had not won. You know I think he'd won the world championship, but people thought. Well, he'll probably win. He's the best. But, you know, at the time it was weird because he was more of a 200 runner trying to go down to the 100 and there were all sorts of questions about him. And he just exploded out of the the gate and he ran like I I don't I should look up his time. It was like a 988 or something. It was like a very very fast time, but not really. And he took the last 20 meters off. He just did he just stopped basically just jogged in from about 20 meters out. He he probably could have set the world record right then and there. He didn't even try. And he just to watch seven or eight of the fastest people on earth in one place, seeing them go 
and seeing one of them that much faster than anybody else, it's mind blowing. It's mind blowing. And I remember thinking that night, that was one of the coolest things I have ever seen. And then of course, watch him in the semi and watch him win the, the, the gold and then watch him win the gold in the 200. And then four years later, watched it again and again, and it always felt great. But that first time, absolutely mind blowing. Yeah. I remember you said, was everybody, did everybody else suddenly like shift to reverse? <laughs> you know, like how did, because it did, it looked like an optical illusion. It did. It did. You know, that he was that much faster without it looking like it was even hard. No. You know, it looked very relaxed. And yeah, it was, it, it, you almost, it almost felt like your eyes had deceived you a little bit, but that, it, it was, that was exactly, you know, what we were seeing. And it, it was pretty awesome. It was awesome. Just awesome. Cool. All right. Yeah. Your third pick. Okay, this is, um, there's so many that come rushing to mind, but again, I was going with the first three that came to me when I knew this was going to be our our thing that we were doing, and it is Joan Benoit winning the Women's Marathon in 1984 in Los Angeles. Oh, yeah. 1984 really stands out in your mind, doesn't it? Yes, yes. Even though the Soviets boycotted, obviously, it it was a a flawed Olympics because the best competition, all of it wasn't there. But for the marathon, um, Greta Vates was the, uh, Vites, I believe is how she actually, how she pronounces Greta Vites. Sure. She, um, she was the favorite from Norway. I think everybody kind of thought she would win. It was the first women's marathon in an Olympics. And that was a, that was monumental because it, it, it was the end of decades of, discrimination against against women running um you know any kind of distance you know they'd had to fight to to get to run distances that they were perfectly capable of running and finally they were allowed if you will to do the marathon and i think um as as sports fans we know that there's been you know discrimination for a variety of reasons you know for race for gender um nationality, um, different reasons that have really unfairly kept people out of competitions. And so when that, that barrier is knocked down, it's monumental from that standpoint. But I remember seeing her, seeing Joan Benoit run into the LA Coliseum and she was first, you know, and here, here is the very first gold medalist, um, in women's marathon in history. And she's sort of waving, you know, her little, her little hat. And it was just, I remember like getting completely choked up, um, watching that and, and just being very proud that a, you know, that she'd won, she was an American. And so I was proud of that, but just proud that this barrier was, was gone. It had just been knocked over. Yeah. It's incredibly cool. It's incredibly cool. And, you know, that's another thing that, uh, you know, we, we both have just talked about, you know, obviously very different distances, but runners, runners have been like such a, an extraordinary part of the Olympics. And in those days in 84 and 80, and certainly well before, even before we were, you know, young, um, you kind of were aware of them. Like they didn't just show up at the Olympics and then, and then like, Oh, okay, well now I need to care about this person. You were aware of these, and I know there are a lot of track and field fans out there now, but but in the sort of mainstream, like I was aware of Joan, Joan Benoit, and I was aware of Greta Weitz, and I was aware 
that that this was a rivalry before the Olympics ever started. And and you know, and it seemed like there were a lot of of those types of things going into the Olympics back then where you, you know, you would see runners and it'd be like, oh, you know what they put into it, you know what their lives have have led up to, you know what the stakes are. And I think it's a little bit different now. I think in the mainstream, like I said, they show up every four years and, and uh, or, you know, every two years, depending on, on which, uh, if you want to talk about both Olympics. And, you know, some of them you remember from the last Olympics or whatever, but the new ones that show up, you don't, you have to sort of be reintroduced to them. And I think it was different then, don't you think? Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and I think you're, you're right. Um, you know, I used to subscribe to runner's world, even though I did not run at all and still don't, but I subscribed to it because my sister ran and I just liked track and field. You know, I just, I really was interested in it. And back then you're, you know, you're right. We knew going in what the different rivalries were in the sprints and the distance races and men and women. And for whatever reason, you know, unfortunately it seems like track and field is a lot more of an insular world now in um you know at least in the united states it is and and i'm not 100 percent sure why um i think it's kind of unfortunate because it is a great sport and has something kind of for everybody um i i also remember about that that um greta weitz was interviewed by abc you know obviously they talked to jim benoit but when they interviewed greta weitz she was so so gracious you know, and, and I, I just, I almost, I remember her interview even, I think more than Joan Benoit's because, you know, she, she finished second, you know, that could have been a historical thing. And, and all she did was praise Joan and, and, you know, say, you know, how great she ran, what a tactically great race she ran and how she was really, you know, pleased to, you know, be part of it. And I, I remember that part too, because she just, you know, ran 26 miles and still had so much grace, um, you know, in, in talking about it. Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing. Uh, all right. With my third pick, I'm going to take, uh, I'm going to go again off the board for a kind of a little bit of a crazy sport uh, because of my own personal experience there. I'm going to take uh, pocket Hercules at the 1996 Olympics. Um, and that was sort of, for me, it was my first Olympics. Uh, it was one of the first Olympic events I'd ever seen. And for me, it has a little bit of that um, Roland Gardner feel. I just showed up, didn't know really anything about it. I was there with a few other sports writers. Uh, we'd heard Pocket Hercules at that point by then as, as a weightlifter was a was a legendary guy. He'd already won, uh, I believe, two gold medals and uh, several world championships. So he was like this legend and ended up going there. And, and it was just in this weird little sort of building in, in Atlanta. They had all of these, all of these sort of Olympic uh, sports, um, I guess, arenas or stadiums all next to each other. It was almost like an apartment complex where you just would walk into a door like, oh, okay, here's weightlifting and oh, here's, uh, here's badminton and here's whatever. And walked into this place and it he had this incredible rivalry um, with, with one uh, particular, um, uh, one particular weightlifter from Greece. Uh, his name was Valerios Leonidas. And, uh, and those two went back and forth and the crowd was insane. And later on, we learned about all the political implications and all the other things, but there was this huge crowd from these, from both their countries, just, just going at each other. And it was like a Auburn, Alabama football game. It was just insane. And they just kept topping each other and topping each other. Uh, and then in the end, pocket Hercules won 
And I, I remember thinking at the time, and I was only 29, 20, excuse me, 20, 20, yeah, 29 years old when it happened and my first Olympics. And I remember thinking, wow, this is, this is what this is all about. This is, this is why the Olympics are incredibly cool. So my third pick, 1996, Pocket Hercules. A great pick. And again, something you experienced live. And and I will say, and I, you know, you, you told me this years ago, there is a difference between um, the Olympics as they happen and the Olympics that most people see on television. They intersect yeah. a lot, but they can be quite different because you don't, you know, we, we've seen things. Um, I, I think of remembering in, um, um, in uh, Torino where the, I believe it's the Japanese pair skaters where the, the woman was thrown and she lost her footing and she fell and it looked like she broke her leg. It was just hideous. And then she managed to get up and keep skating and they ended up with a silver medal. And you and I thought, Oh my God, that was unbelievable. That's going to be such (laughs) a great deal. The, you know, the network NBC, it didn't, it just didn't resonate, I guess with them. They were from China. That was it. It was China. Yes, you're right. Forgive me. It was China. And, and so, um, something we saw live that still sticks with us because it really seemed courageous. You know, you could tell she was in a lot of pain and yet she still got up and, and finished her, her routine. It was insane. Yeah. It was, it, he basically threw her into the wall. Yeah. She like smacked her head exactly. up against the wall. It was like crazy. Yeah. yeah. And, and they, and they came away with the medal. So, so sometimes there are things, you know, that you see if you're there um, that just, you know, there aren't, either not presented much at all or just aren't presented the same way. So they, they are sort of different. Are, yeah. are we're just picking three. Is that generally how that's. No, no, we go five. We go five. Okay. Oh yeah. Okay. Cause I have more and I was just, I was a little worried because you know, oh, no. I thought, well, okay. All right. Um, so I guess it's my turn. It um, is. So some people will say, I can't believe that this would be this low. But part of it is that this sport has grown to creep me out, um, and probably a lot of people. And um, as we've as we know more about it uh, and the worst elements of it, and there's just there's no way now for me to talk about this sport without having in some part of my mind the worst elements of it, which is unfortunate. That said, Nadia Comaneci, sure. first perfect ten. Um, 1976, and it was, you know, there's all the famous stories about how the the scoreboard didn't have room for a 10, right? Nobody had gotten it, so it looked like 1.0. And then, you know, she just got a bunch of them. It's like, okay, yeah, that's a 10, and I'm not going to stop at 110. She, we talked earlier about people revolutionizing a sport. Um, She really did. that, That revolution really had started in 72. And I'm not sure it was necessarily the best of things because it, it meant the, you know, the, the, if, if you will, it went from a women's sport to more of a girl's sport or women who were sort of delayed in growth. There's just no way to, to, to talk about it without being honest about that. So it, there was, it was both fascinating and there was a little bit now that we look in retrospect and say, it, it changed the sport in a way that was, also somewhat it has been problematic but she was 
amazing and she really stole the show i mean she was for all the other amazing things that did happen in 76 in montreal i think she was the biggest star so nadia and um you know that first perfect 10 although you could say her entire olympics were you know were were sort of the, the show of montreal Absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. I, you know, I was really uh, fortunate to, uh, to, you know, and I, I did it a couple of times. I think I did it around figure skating once, maybe around you, not Kim, where I actually called Nadia and talked to her about this notion of perfection, this notion of, of, you know, because it is kind of funny. In fact, I'll, I'll just go ahead and say my fourth pick, my fourth pick uh, was watching Simone Biles at the, at the 2018 um, uh, 2016, I guess, Olympics. Um, that first time just watching her just be impossibly just, it just, it was, it was ludicrous what she, what she's was doing just, just physically to watch someone do the things that she was doing, particularly in the floor exercise, but in everything was just, mind-blowing it's just absolutely mind-blowing and seeing that that was one seeing live so this is this is what i was going to say i was there um in in 1996 when uh carrie strong landed on one leg to to basically clinch uh the gold medal for the u.s team and it was a huge huge deal but it was much 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 infinitely better on television than it was live because live with gymnastics, there's, you know, there, there are four events going on at exactly the same time. It's not like she's the only one on the stage. She's going and somebody's going on the, on the floor and somebody's going on the, on the parallel bars. And, and, and so there's a lot happening and, and all at the same time. So that's one thing. But the second thing was we had already figured out the U.S. had already won the gold medal. I mean, what she did was incredible. I don't know that she knew they had clinched it, um, but they had. They had already clinched it when she landed, or at least that's the way we had figured it using our, you know, relatively uh, lame math skills. So when she did it, it was like, wow, that's really cool. But it wasn't until it got on television, and that turned out to be the 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 moment, you know. And they didn't they didn't say that the U.S. had already clinched it when she landed. It was much much better on television. Simone Biles. On television, in person does not matter. It's absolutely insane, and this is what I'm talking about. That that wasn't about winning gold medals. That wasn't about winning anything. That was about how it made you feel as a as just a person, just to see somebody do something that beautiful and extraordinary, and 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 all of that. And that's what I was going to say. Is I I talked to to Nadia about that, and of course she had a lot of great things to say, but. <laughs> Watch Nadia perform in in you know 1976, and watch uh, Simone Biles in 2016. It's not the same sport anymore, right? Athletically, it's just it's just a completely different world. And of course, you see the same thing in figure skating and so many other things. Um, you know what Nadia did was just beautiful, but athletically. It's it's a completely different different deal, and the scoring was different. Everything else was different. So it's it's awesome. I can remember just being totally blown away. Again, growing up in an Olympic family, and my mother being a huge Olympic fan, and and every one of us just being you know just 
completely gobsmacked at, at what Nadia did. But then to be able to go 40 years later and watch Simone Biles take this whole thing to a whole different level, just amazing. Yeah, her just her, you know, we talked about optical illusions. That's I think Simone watching Simone Biles sometimes insane. seems like an optical illusion. <laughs> it just, does. I mean, her athleticism, her her explosion, um, that the height she gets, uh, oh. it it really is it's breathtaking. And um how should I, she's not waif like, and I mean that in a good way. Like she's powerful, yeah. Yeah. which frankly is something you like to see in in gymnastics because of uh, so many of the issues that the sport has had. Um, th- that you see somebody like Simone Biles, and you feel like she's the she's the best version. I feel like, um, and I hope that doesn't Absolutely. sound wrong, but that's what I mean. I think I think she's she's got that explosive factor. Um, is is so athletic and yet has you know her her grace or movements everything about the way that she does gymnastics is is pretty fantastic to watch and somebody I think gymnastics needed honestly was a was oh. a big help to that sport absolutely all right your fifth pick so a bunch of different things obviously went through my mind and I so it's probably cheating to mention them but I can cheat a little bit uh in terms of stuff that I you know this isn't my pick I'll get to my pick in one second but remember we saw um Michael Phelps swim that amazing leg um you know in uh in the relay which was part of his eight gold medals and it looked for all the world like there was no chance they were going to win and then it was it was um Phelps and his teammates the way that they were able to to come back and win that race. That race was pretty amazing. Um, I was a huge Dorothy Hamill fan back in, in 76. So I was super excited to see her win. Although I think probably her, like others would say, was that the very best performance she ever gave and, and maybe not, but it was good enough. But my fifth pick will be again, a winter Olympic and will be from 1976. It's from Palmer's. Oh, Franz yes. Klammer's oh, downhill. Yes. <laughs> um, those, just the watching that. Um, I, I think the, the only thing you can think of, even when you watch it now, is he was he was skiing on the edge of disaster. That entire yeah. downhill, he was. I think, um, I think he was last of the top seeds. So he already knew I'm going to have to just go all out. I cannot be conservative in any way. The downhills is so scary. <laughs> you know, it's such a scary event. And for this, you know, he's skating, he's skiing in front of his home country. It's the, you know, it's the biggest, I think, ski race of that Olympics, obviously, for, for the Austrians. And he's going to have to go out and, and, and ski on the edge of disaster, or he's not going to get the gold medal. And he did it. And you watch it now and it's still like, you keep thinking, oh my God, he's going to lose it here. He's going to lose it here. And, and he, he held on and won. And so, um, I just remember being thrilled watching that as, as a kid, I was 11 then, and just being so happy for the host country. Cause you knew this is their sport. This is their guy. And he just had to do something amazing and, and he did it. Just absolutely astonishing. Now, one of his near falls was always in the lead in for um for um uh the the ABC's um, uh, wide world of sports right there, there yeah. was one of those it was he almost fell like how many times like seven like yeah. uh, it was insane he was like sideways like half the time he was flying in the air sideways 
It's it's insane. It's absolutely insane. And again, and I don't know why this is, but there was something more clarifying about that moment than than it feels like there is now. And 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 by that I mean like maybe it's because of the way television presented it. And and maybe it's because I haven't watched as much Olympics on television having uh, been lucky enough to go. But you knew he was like way behind. You knew that he needed like this crazy, you know, uh, speed to get there. And then you watched him like, okay, that's what you have to do. If you're going to go that fast is, is almost fall many, many times during, during a race. Um, it was, it's amazing. It just, it was amazing and so much fun. And again, that was one that would have been better on television for sure. Having covered the downhill, uh, that's way better on TV to, to, because you can follow it all the way down and, and, uh, um, you know, for that to still stick around in the memory all these years later is, is amazing. Yeah. And that, and that yellow ski suit, you know, that just that blur. <laughs> and I think he won, I think it was by like, th- like point. of a second. So he had to do that to win. I mean, it was that close for him to get the gold medal. He had to ski um, in this way that was just, it it was insane. And, and he did it. So, and and you're right, just on television, you you can see every second of a ski race. Yes. You know, when you're in in, that, and it's funny, Joe, it's like when you're covering the first time I covered luge, sort of realized this is this is also much better on television because in person you basically are standing there and and something goes by you really really fast and then you that's look, it and then you look and see what the time is and that's that's it so that's a that's a much better sport um to watch on tv than than uh, to actually because you really don't watch it in person you're just kind of there while it's going on that's exactly right all right my fifth pick you mentioned him i've, I've got to put him on the list because he's the greatest Olympian uh, that I ever saw and the greatest Olympian maybe of all time. And that was Michael Phelps. However, the Michael Phelps moment that I'm going to pick is not when he won the eighth uh, medal, gold medal at the, at the Olympics uh, in 2008, because that moment is in my memory, horrible, just absolutely terrible uh, because he, 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 uh, NBC had set it up for him to swim in the morning there in in China, which was the evening here. So I was on deadline and every single thing, and, and it was crazy because that was, of course, for the eighth. We'd already written about him seven times. We had to write for the front page, which is always uh, a whole different experience. Uh, and you just had all of these people around me, all of these sports writers around me breaking down basically in tears because they had nothing left to say. It was a boring race. His eighth gold medal was a boring race. Uh, he didn't come out right away. Even when he came out, he really didn't say very much. Um, so trying to, trying to sum up this extraordinary moment, um, for the front page of, you know, for readers who are, who are, who are not even sports fans generally, but, but are obviously interested in this, um, was just an extraordinarily, uh, awful challenge. And, and, and like I say, it, I've se- I actually saw, uh, our dear friend Vahe Gregorian break down in tears. It was, it was, uh, I watched, uh, another friend, Kevin Van Falkenberg, uh, lose his mind. Uh, it was, it was, it was very, very harsh. So I am going to choose instead his seventh gold medal, uh, at the Olympics, which is when he beat Millerad Kavik, uh, to the, uh, to the tape by, whatever, a fingertip. And you might remember 
that's one that they had the famous Sports Illustrated photo where uh, they show both of them basically close to the wall and 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 Phelps is above the water and Kavik is below the water and Kavik's finger is like a millimeter away from the wall and and Phelps looks like he's like five feet away from the wall and yet somehow Phelps won you know actually out touched him uh, because he was above the water and 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 Kavik I think I think Kavik told me later that he it wasn't a perfect ending for him. I think that he, that he coasted a little longer than he needed to or whatever. Um, but it was one of the closest ever. And, and that was everything that the eighth gold medal was uh, not that That's how it should have ended. That's how he should have won his eighth. It didn't work out that way, but that was incredibly touching, incredibly uh, close, uh, tense. Everybody, you know, felt these huge emotions, uh, I, I spent uh, quite a bit of time talking to Kavik uh, at the end of that year for a story where he, you know, really, you know, sort of bore his soul about what it was like to to get that close to to wrecking something that now is, you know, legendary. And 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 you know, of course, he wanted to do it, but on the other hand, he's he's a part of history now in a way that maybe he wouldn't have been if he had actually won. And Lots of stuff going on. An amazing moment. One of the greatest moments in the history of the Olympics. Uh, and I was lucky enough to be there. So that is my uh, fifth pick. A, a great pick. And you're right. When those photos in SI, if you could not convince anybody if they didn't know the outcome of the race, you could not convince anybody that that Phelps won the race. It no, was that. It's it was impossible. That, uh, yeah. And and but that was sort of a, you know, that's uh, obviously with the the huge um i mean he came into that olympics with so much on his shoulders you know this idea like okay this is it's it's going to be a failure if you don't win eight (laughs) gold medals and he did (laughs) i know and he had to do it in you know and 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 he had like you said moments that were that were sort of that, that weren't that dramatic because he was so much better and you know won them pretty easily and then moments where he really had to reach and dig deep and um and was able to do it it, it really was um it was a it was a pretty amazing thing to to be at the olympic pool at the at the at the bubble right that's so you know i had that it was that big square that had all those uh <laughs> the, the, the water bubbles on the outside of it uh it was pretty amazing to to be there for that just just amazing all right uh, awesome draft. Uh, I think we're both winners. So uh, we go on to one last meaningless thing to end this meaningless thing. It's one last meaningless thing to end this meaningless thing. We talk about sports and we draft things we know, like how beaches are terrible places to go. No hot fruit for Michael, nor Diet Coke for Joe. The podcast whoa, it's one last whoa, meaningless thing. Were you able to come up with one? Do you have a good one last meaningless thing for us? Can you do your meaningless thing first? Oh, I get to I do mine first. We always yeah. let our guests go first. Yeah, All right, I will do my riff first. off of yours. So, oh well, you could. I don't know if you can riff off of this craziness, but that's okay. So, uh, my one last meaningless thing. Then this meaningless thing is that my uh, our oldest daughter Elizabeth is now. Uh, we're looking at schools. We are now um, 
uh, basically coming to visit a couple of schools. She is a, she's ending her junior year. So we are at that, at that stage where you start, uh, thinking hard about this. And, um, one thing that I've just not been able to get my arms around is I have known, uh, Elizabeth, uh, from since, since obviously the day she was born, I've, I've kind of feel like I know her. Um, but I, what you find as a father is you think, you know, pretty much everything there is to know or everything you need to know. I mean, you don't need to know a lot of stuff about, about, uh, your kids, but, but everything you need to know, but, since we have started this uh, college process, I have found that I don't know my daughter at all, uh, that every single thing that I thought she wanted from a college, and by, by when I say I thought she wanted, it's, it's because she told me that's what she wanted, um, is now changing. And so she wanted a small school, and now suddenly she wants a big school. She wanted a school that didn't care at all about sports. Now she wants a school that, uh, that uh, does care about sports. She wanted a school that... Uh, that was sort of in the Northeast and she didn't want a school in the Northeast. So it's, I, 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 my head is spinning as I try to figure out what the heck my daughter, who I should know pretty well at this point, And my wife is going through the same thing. Margo's going through the same thing. Um, you know, we, we, we just talk to each other and we say, uh, do you know her? Do you understand what, you know? And, and the funny thing is, it's not like she's waffling. She's not. She has a very, very clear vision now of exactly where she wants to go to college. Um, but it's exactly the opposite of where she wanted to go to college when we started this process. So uh, anyway, completely meaningless to anybody else except for us. But it just goes to show you that when you start dealing with this uh, college stuff, uh, you don't really know anything. You know, that's true. I, in some ways, I think I was lucky because I really wasn't that smart and I didn't have like this huge uh, <laughs> list of uh, accomplishments. Uh, I, uh, I was just kind of a, an, a pretty average student who was pretty much a nerd. And so I just was like, I hope I get into the University of Missouri because that's kind of like the only place I've thought about going. Uh, and I did. So it was pretty easy when I see, you know, I have friends, obviously, your age and, and uh, who are all going through um, a lot of this college stuff, it's like, you just, I'm thinking, wow, this is not something I dealt with or really my parents well, dealt with. So, and it was different in that way. And it was, no, but it was also different then. I mean, college was different then and the search for colleges was different then. I, 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 my own college experience was entirely different. My parents, uh, deeply loved me and all that. They didn't, they, they were completely uninvolved in my college uh, <laughs> search. And I they just, I mean, it wasn't, you know, that's, that just wasn't how you did it then you, you, you did stuff yourself and, and, and it wasn't as competitive. I mean, it, everything was very, very different then. Um, and I'm very proud. I mean, Elizabeth, uh, you know, she knows what she wants and she's going after it and it's great. It's just, it's just very odd to find that, uh, that they're, they, they're, they're not, they don't necessarily, it's not predictable. Uh, kids are not predictable. I guess that's not a huge insight, but, uh, but it's something I learn new every day. This is true. Well, here's, here's my meaningless thing. And it is really meaningless, but yes, um, more I, meaningless, the better. I sort of realized I don't like binging, like TV binging. <laughs> and I don't think it's a great idea 
And yet right? I'm susceptible to it like everybody yes. else. And so my a very, very good friend of mine binged The Americans and he did it in about maybe two months. Um, so it's wow. six seasons. So I had watched The Americans from the beginning. And, you know, so it, it unfolded over six years for me. And so I'm convinced that my experience had to be more meaningful um, because I watched the characters grow in quote unquote real time. Um, I watched, especially the, the, the two young people on the show that were very young when it started or, you know, early teens um, and then, you know, grew into college age. So they didn't do that in, you know, in two months time for me, they did over six years. And yet, like, I'm afraid to start my favorite show now, which is The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I'm afraid to start the second season. It came out in December, right? And I told myself, wait until the college basketball season's over. That'll be your reward. Well, the college basketball season's been over for a while, but I'm still kind of afraid to start. I keep watching the first season over, which I've seen a lot. Um, because I don't want to binge. It's like, I'm afraid I'm going to open the box of chocolates and I'm just going to start throwing them all in my mouth. Like I, I want to enjoy it over the course of a longer time. And so I know that sounds ridiculous, but that that's my thing is I, I almost wish we didn't have the option to binge, but we do. So we kind of then just have to control ourselves or we just have to binge and realize that, that we can't control ourselves no that's right well I, I don't like binging i'm i am extraordinarily susceptible to binging and the few shows i have watched i as you, you know i don't watch that much television but the few shows i have watched uh, the wire the madman uh, breaking bad uh, you know a few other others like that uh, i did binge and i don't like what it does to me it's not just that i'm i'm sort of obsessive about seeing the next one and the next one and the next one I feel my whole personality sort of changing. Like like when I was binging Breaking Bad, I felt myself becoming much more paranoid about life in general. I really did, which is weird. And when I, you know, I, I'm sort of, we're not binging, but we're sort of binge watching Mad Men again from, I'm, I'm doing that with Elizabeth because uh, she she loves it. And, uh, and again, I just start feeling a little bit different, uh, because I'm binge watching it. So I don't like it, but I am extraordinarily susceptible to it. And, uh, this is probably the worst part of it. I don't have the patience anymore for like waiting a week for like another show. Like I, if, if, you know, if, if there are shows that I do, uh, you have certainly Michael's shows I, I watch weekly and all of that. Uh, but generally speaking, I kind of, you know, I've, I've gotten used to that feeling of, um, okay, well, how many more do I have left and let me go, you know? And, and, uh, I don't think it's healthy. I don't think it's good. I actually got the nicest compliment the other day, and I'm going to use this to, uh, to, um, promote my book because I don't know if people know that I've written a book about, uh, Harry Houdini. Uh, that's coming out October 22nd. Um, but I got the nicest compliment the other day. I, I've sent out the book now to a few uh, people who are involved in helping me uh, write it and, and, and people that, uh, that I wanted to get a very, very early version. The, 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 the version that you'll be getting, for instance, Michelle, is coming out in the next couple of weeks. But, um, but I sent it off and, and he sent me the nicest thing. He said, um, I, I, 
I'm really bothered because I'm reading it too fast and I want to be able to like, I want to be able to soak it in and I, and, and, but I can't help myself and I'm reading on and on, which is a, the nicest thing a writer could ever hear uh, in the world is, is that, and that was incredibly cool to hear, but it's how I feel when I'm binge watching uh, stuff. So it's not great. It's not great, but what are you going to do? I mean, let, let's be honest. I mean, if once you start watching Miss Mizell, you're going to get to the end pretty quickly. You're just not yeah. going to be able to help yourself. Yeah, and then I'm just going to have to. I'll do the same thing I've done with the first season, which is just watch it seven or eight times over. Again. Exactly. So, That's so what I do, do have to say that I'll just keep enjoying it. But yeah, that is something that bothers me is that. I don't like to do it, but I don't seem to have the ability. So once it, I mean, the, the time's going to happen. And basically now I've decided it's when the blues are out of the playoffs, um, <laughs> then that, then my, the thing that will cheer me up then, um, obviously I have my Cardinals, but uh, then I'll, then I'll watch it and then I'll probably binge it. Even though what if, what if the blues win the Stanley cup, then you're not going to be, then you're, then you're not going to even, you won't even watch Ms. Mizell. You'll be so happy. Um, I can't let myself think about that possibility. It's just too, it's too tantalizing. Yes, but, um, that I understand. You, know what? you, you, you just, you, you, you never know. So it's like you, you always go, go into uh, every series with that hope, right? So that's the best sports fans. But then deep down, you're like, oh, this will never happen. But no. what if? What if? Why not? Why not? I mean, just because um, all my teams don't win doesn't mean that everybody else should have to deal with that uh, kind of nonsense. All right, Michelle, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. I can't thank you enough for uh, taking the time. Um, Thanks for letting me do it. Absolutely.